0: Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, retired Army Colonel Douglas McGregor details what the U.S. should do with its bloated military budget. Rob Campia of the Marijuana Policy Project provides an upbeat assessment for the future of medical marijuana. Cato senior fellow Randall O'Toole pokes holes in the Obama administration plans for so-called high-speed rail. And Cato Executive Vice President David Bowes puts some perspective to the current assault on liberty in the United States. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Candidate Barack Obama pledged a wave of change in his quest for the White House. It's clear that he's delivered some of that in a few areas. Less clear is how change will express itself In the U.S. military, I'm joined by Christopher Preble, the director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute and author of the new book, The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. Also joined by Ben Friedman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute in Defense and Homeland Security Studies. Gentlemen, welcome. Now... Give us a perspective on what the military has become since the end of the Cold War.
1: Well, since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. military has gotten a little bit smaller than it was, but it has also become more involved in more places around the world. We've maintained all of our Cold War era alliances and added a few new ones. Uh, We've expanded NATO. And the military then after 9-11 grew even more ostensibly to deal with terrorism. But of course, we know from experience that a lot of the work the military has been doing since 9-11 has not really been focused on terrorism. The war in Iraq was sold as a part of the war on terrorism, but most people don't believe that was true. If anything, it made the problem worse. So Barack Obama inherited a very large military that was doing many, many different things. And if his supporters, if they expected that he was going to make dramatic cuts, they weren't paying very close attention because on the campaign trail, he did not promised to make major cuts. The only thing that he promised with respect to the military was to end the war in Iraq, the mission in Iraq. uh, But he was likely to do that anyway, because the agreement that he inherited from the Bush administration pretty much did a lot of that work for him. To the extent the Afghanistan war is seen as the good war, it's also increasingly being seen as the even harder war than the war in Iraq. So he has a lot on his plate, and uh, he has not signaled a strong desire to really fundamentally rethink what the military is and should be doing. Ben
0: Friedman, as the U.S. military seems to be engaged in a lot of counterinsurgency struggles, how has that affected how the military has changed shape?
2: Well, the the military has been shifting for some time, certainly since September 11th, into becoming somewhat more of a counterinsurgency force, largely because we've been spending more money on personnel. We've been increasing the size of the Army and the Marine Corps, something that Obama supported in the campaign, and we've been paying all service members more money, so personnel is becoming more expensive and part as a result of the wars. I think it's important to keep in mind when you talk about Obama and uh, change in the military budget that, uh, look, Democrats, at least the elite foreign policy Democrats, are not particularly interested in large scale change. They want to put a little more money into counterinsurgency capabilities. They'd like to spend more money on the State Department and aid. But they embraced the role that the United States first took on in the Cold War, which is a global military presence. We didn't used to do that in peacetime in American history. We used to come home. We used to draw down. We don't draw down anymore. And, they, and Democrats agree with that. So they want troops forward. They want peacetime alliances with the NATO countries and uh, with our Asian allies, even though, uh, in contrast, when we form those alliances, they can afford to defend themselves. They want a U.S. military that polices failed states around the world. There's no dovish party in the United States. There's no party that wants to draw down and come home. And Obama has shown no sign of being outside that consensus.
1: Christopher Preble. What's so striking about the fact that there is no dovish party, there is no party that wishes to return the United States to its traditional role, which is focused on defense here in the United States, here in the Western Hemisphere, which was our pattern, uh, despite the fact that poll after poll shows that the American people are very unhappy with being the world's policeman. they're very unhappy with paying for the defense of other countries that certainly are capable of defending themselves. And, you know, in a very kind of selfish Machiavellian sense, our providing security for other countries has progressively made them weaker. And in the process, in the future, if we ever were actually wanted those allies to contribute something of value to us, we're experiencing this in Afghanistan, they don't have much to give. There's no political will in those countries for defense because they've moved away from it for so long. And, you know, my notion of the alliance is that you have allies with capabilities. Uh, we don't have that. We have allies who are... So heavily dependent upon the United States for their own security and so disinclined to provide for themselves that they'll never, at least not if we don't change, they'll never be in a position to help us, let alone defend themselves.
0: At the end of the Cold War, things fundamentally shifted. Chris Preble, you and I talked earlier. You said that military spending sort of bottomed out in the late 1990s. Right. How much of this new spending is driven, at least since September 11, 2001, how much of this uh, rise in military spending that we've seen recently has been driven by the concept of the
1: military's purpose to punish evildoers? Well, some of it certainly has been. I talk in some detail in the book about personnel expenses, which Ben has already alluded to, but... When the war in Iraq, particularly when the war in Iraq got very difficult and we were having some serious problems with recruiting and retention, the military resorted to an all manner of things to increase the recruiting, one of which was bonuses and more pay. But as Ben points out, I mean, salary and benefits have been going up for some time. and. We've certainly spent a lot of money there, but if you look at some of the other things, the largest line item in terms of hardware in the defense budget is missile defense. It's sold as a counterterrorism uh, tool, but, of course, terrorists don't have missiles. That's the whole point. They don't have a state. They don't have a state from which to launch missiles from. And so what I think is a lot of the excuses that are used to support some of the more costly hardware programs have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with fighting terrorism. Even the the argument that you need a more conventional force, more boots on the ground, this is the logic behind the push for more counterinsurgency. Uh, That also runs afoul of the problem that when you maintain a large physical presence on the ground, it tends to engender a lot of hostility and suspicion. And ultimately, it can contribute to the same problem we've been talking about, which is a country becoming so heavily dependent upon someone else for their own defense that they can't defend themselves or won't defend themselves. So none of these problems have been solved. Ben Friedman? There's a tendency, I think, for Americans to think that when we do
2: things, we're not subject to the laws of Politics and uh, there 's a thing in the world called nationalism, and uh, you know it says among other things it says that people really tend to resent uh, foreign occupations of their countries and people dictating them how they ought to run them and we 're not immune from that, even though we think our ideas about politics are universal, and that nationalism cuts against any country 's ability to run other countries, even if they try to do it in a benign way. And uh, that really limits the utility of uh, occupations of other states. When we say, you know, what our security depends on fixing failed states, we have to recognize that's a historically challenging task that might simply be
0: impossible. What does our security depend on? As we try to think about uh, what the US military ought to be doing, what is the properly understood uh,
1: Purpose of the U.S. military? Well, I mean, obviously, the core function of government is to provide security for the citizens, and the you know, Constitution stipulates provide for the common defense. Now, the common defense is the citizens of the United States of America. You know, my argument in the book is that we have a very large country, large geographically. We're spread out over a long distance, from Hawaii to Maine, and. We're going to need a large military to provide security for that territory, but not nearly as large as the one we have, because so much of our military right now is dedicated to defending others. So I would start by redefining what the purpose of US military power is, which is to defend the United States, defend our shores, our people, our way of life. I would also revisit the different... Weapon systems and the different platforms and the personnel, why do we need a very large army? It is useful if you 're planning to invade and occupy a lot more countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. I think most Americans don 't want to do that. most Americans, I think correctly recognize that we don 't need to do that to be secure. But if the consensus in Washington holds, then we are going to be doing more such missions and that 's why there 's so much push for growing the army and the marine Corps. The last point is you know my position we have uh, you know the ocean approaches to the United States. We have uh, the airspace over the United States. These should be patrolled and secured by our forces. But we're not the only ones in the Western Hemisphere either. There are a lot of other countries that have uh, interest in their own security, and we should be doing a lot more cooperation on that. Not assuming that that we're the only country in the on the planet, let alone in the area that could deal with these problems. Ben Friedman. One of the interesting things about our defense budget is it's really not for defense.
2: I mean, we don't really talk about this in an honest way, but our defense budget is, I think, in truth, an activity that takes place for a variety of aims, hegemony, the spreading of liberal democracy in name, if not in fact. And uh, these aims really are... uh, justified as uh, associated with our defense. But in reality, they're really remote from it. And uh, the activities that actually contribute to our defense, defending sea lanes, you know, having an army uh, that can defend us and maybe key allies under the worst circumstances are relatively cheap because uh, there really aren't that many big enemies left for us to fight in the world. And you just don't hear people talking honestly about that. It's a funny thing.
1: I was going to add that as we're taping, one of the big issues this week and last week has been piracy. And this is a classic case from my argument that we are a beneficiary of a global trading economy, but we are only one of many beneficiaries. And it is unrealistic, it's unfair, and it's no wonder that the American people aren't very supportive of the United States bearing the disproportionate share of the burden for policing the commons. And there is a model, there is a pattern where countries defending their own interests will often cooperate with one another to deal with problems like piracy. We saw it in the Straits of Malacca a few years ago. We've been seeing it off the coast of Somalia over the last few weeks. It is interesting. You do hear from time to time people in Washington say, We cannot do this ourselves. We should not do this ourselves. That's basically the message of my book, is I don't want the United States and the United States alone to be the only country in the world capable and willing to use its power to defend everyone, not just ourselves. I want countries that are capable of defending themselves, and if they are, then they will be in a stronger position to work with us in a cooperative way when there are challenges in these common areas.
0: So properly understood, if a defense system is primarily for defense of the United States what would our military look like if uh, we were to adopt that as our uh, organizing principle for the military look if we don't have an army as chris said that's designed to occupy
2: other countries on a grand scale as in iraq we don't need 48 brigade combat teams we probably need like 20 if we don't need a navy that's designed to fight uh, a couple conventional wars simultaneously including against a big country like China, we don't need 11 carrier battle groups, which is the main group of ships that the Navy uses to operate. We need about eight tops, maybe less. So you could cut significantly the structure of the Navy and get rid of ships in various classes. If we don't need an air force that's designed to fight a big war with China, we could get rid of a lot of air wings. The air force has something like 18 combat air wing equivalents. We could get rid of half of them. There's also something called the precision revolution where we've become much more accurate in the bombs that we put on uh, aircraft, which means that they're much more effective in destroying targets. And yet we as a taxpayer haven't reaped the benefit of that. It's just been reinvested in other parts of the Air Force. So you could make – cuts across the board. And I think in, in Chris and I's vision of uh, how you'd reform the military, you'd cut the ground forces the most because we are sort of an island nation in effect. And that means our sea and airlines are what surround us. And that's probably where the bulk of our spending
1: should be. Right. I totally agree. The only thing I'd add to that is that you need a professional active duty military that is committed 100% of the time to fighting wars overseas to be effective in counterinsurgency, whereas our vision of the proper role of a ground army would be as a reserve a strategic reserve so maybe we would have Uh, continue to have a large reserve component and a guard component, but not nearly as many active duty forces. They're just not necessary for the kinds of core functions that we're talking about. The last thing, which we haven't talked about, is unmanned vehicles. There's been enormous progress made in unmanned vehicles. And so to add to Ben's point about precision, the need for manned aircraft, the need for a large aircraft carrier launching manned aircraft becomes less and less significant. And if you think about how much smaller a carrier would be if its role was to launch unmanned vehicles as opposed to FNA eighteen, so you know there is so much progress that's been made in terms of the technology of these things. And Ben's exactly right; we have not reaped the benefits because ultimately, the military has not been forced to compete with the private sector and with other functions of government. They have continued to get increases over and you know year after year after year at least, again, since 1998, which is where the inflection point was. And because they are not compelled to make hard choices, they don't. And there's also very little competition between the various services. It's becoming a little bit more competition now but we need much more of that competition between the various services, making the kind of case that we've been. Tell the Air Force, why is it that your mission is so crucial to the security of the United States? And is your mission more important, therefore, than the Army, than the Marine Corps? We haven't had those kind of debates in this country for a very long time.
0: Ben, why is that? Why haven't we had that kind of debate among the branches and among the different parts of the military?
2: Well, there's two reasons. The first is because the budget has just been so big that uh, it doesn't force hard choices. I mean, one of the reasons we're getting choices now is because you know, after 50% growth in the last decade in real terms, we finally said, okay, the growth is going to stop. The Obama administration did, and all of a sudden it turns out we can't afford everything that's in the pipeline, so we've got to get rid of some stuff. So, you know, Gates, is, everybody says, Gates is making these big revolutionary changes. Now, he's just reacting to the fact that you got something's got to give in the budget. But more interestingly, I think uh, one of the reasons we haven't seen more competition is because we have this tradition since the Kennedy administration of equal service shares where every service gets about the same cut of the budget year in and year out, roughly a third, give or take a couple of percentage points. And that destroys the services incentives to innovate and therefore try to eat the lunch of the other services. So, you know, if you said uh, we're going to reward services that seem to do things particularly well, you might say, well, you know, now we have a ground force centric military and the, you know, the army is delivering our security more so than the air force. So, uh, we're going to take away a bunch of the Air Force's budget. In my world, it would be vice versa. We'd probably give a lot more to the Navy, but and that would induce the services to uh, compete a little bit more and, and would probably be a, a source of innovation.
1: Is there anything else we need to get to? You know, the one counterintuitive thing about my book, and it's in the subtitle, it's, is people think of our military as crucial to our security, and at some level, that is still true. On the other hand, having more power than we need, strictly speaking, encourages the united states encourages policymakers in washington to become involved in things that they otherwise would stay out of by necessity we do not have those kind of hard we talk about hard choices in terms of spending we talk about hard choices in terms of trading off between the various services but it's equally important that policymakers in Washington be constrained in how they use that power. It's very, very hard to enforce that because the impulse to want to do something good, the impulse to want to come to someone else's assistance is so strong and there's so little institutional barriers now because of the way that war powers have been so heavily concentrated in the executive branch that it's very, very hard for anyone in Washington to stop that impulse. If the president of the United States wakes up one morning and he says, I really want to send troops to country X, he can do it. There's very little to stop him. And ultimately, we need to impose some discipline on policymakers. And I think that discipline comes from a smaller, more focused military, a military that is very specifically geared towards its constitutional obligations, defending the people of the United States, defending our country, defending our system as it has existed for 230-some-odd years now.
0: All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Christopher Preble, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of the book, The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, and Ben Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies, also at the Cato Institute. You can get a copy of the book at Cato.org. The Pentagon needs serious reform. Acquisition programs run above cost and behind schedule, and the U.S. defense budget is higher than at any point during the Cold War. But what does our military do? What should it be doing? Retired U.S. Army Colonel Douglas McGregor told a Cato policy forum in March that at some point spending has to be cut, and that means refocusing military priorities away from defending countries around the
3: world. In contrast to a lot of people that think we're at the beginning of something, I think we are at the end of something. An end of a long period that actually began with Les Aspin's testimony in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee in 1992, when he was announced as uh, President Clinton's Secretary of uh, Defense. And he was asked, Mr. Aspin, in the absence of any existential threat to the United States, the collapse of the Soviet military establishment, what is the mission of the United States Armed Forces? And without hesitation, Les Aspen said, to punish evil doers. And I think we began a trip down this morally self-justifying road that is appealing to many people on the right and on the left for different reasons. That was then subsequently reinforced by Madeleine Albright who described us as the indispensable nation. The nation that presumably has all of the answers for everyone else's problems and has this military establishment that can be used now without restraint anywhere at once to rectify all of the things that we don't like in regions, countries, states, and places where there are internal difficulties. I think that period is coming to an end. There are a couple of reasons why I think it's coming to an end. The first, of course, is economic. Now, I have to concede that I do probably find Rubini more persuasive than most economists. However, I do agree with John Kenneth Galbraith, who says that economists exist to make astrologers look competent and professional. (laughs) I don't want to hang my hat too much on economists, but I think we're in a lot of trouble. I think we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I think the pressure on this administration over the next several years to harvest more and more funds from the Department of Defense that would have otherwise been committed to ventures much like Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and the Balkans and Somalia and Haiti and so forth is going to be overwhelming. We are actually going to, at some point, have to cut spending as opposed to simply print or borrow money. And there's a second part of this, and that is that the American electorate is not really interested in any of this. You know, one of the things that is always ignored in the discussion of counterinsurgency successes in Iraq is the enormous amount of cash that we have been passing out to all of the people who were formerly shooting at us. Hundreds of millions of dollars. The famous sheikhs of Anbar who met with President Bush a couple of years ago are now multimillionaires. They benefit from direct payments, they benefit from contracts, and we have essentially given them what they wanted in 2003, which was in addition to money, local autonomy, and independence. These kinds of deals that we've cut that have been so successful could have been cut in 2003, and we could have gotten out of the place. It's taken us years to come around to this. But it is a dangerous, deluding statement to think that Muslim populations anywhere want US or British conventional forces in great numbers inside their country. They do not. They want us out of Iraq today. The Afghans want us out. We are dealing with hostile populations. They will certainly take whatever we are passing out. They will try to use and employ us in any way they can for their own specific purposes in the struggle for power internal to their respective society. But the bottom line is they want us out. We need to understand that. It is not just Muslims. The entire non-European world does not want us to police, govern, and administer their countries, even if our own armed forces are dramatically better, more honest, more capable, and more competent than their own. So I think we're at the end of this process. I think the American people instinctively understand it, and I think as time goes on and more and more people are unemployed, questions are going to be raised. How do we justify passing out hundreds of millions of dollars to hundreds of thousands of Sunni Arabs who were formerly shooting at us, and at the same time, we are not adequately supporting Americans who are in far greater need here at home?
0: Consistent with state laws and the principles of federalism, the Obama administration has pledged to end federal raids against medical marijuana dispensaries in states where they are legal. But just as alcohol prohibition ended for a variety of reasons, including the desire for more tax revenue, the prohibition on marijuana may end sooner rather than later. So said Rob Campia, executive director of the Marijuana Policy Project at a Cato Institute Policy Forum in March.
4: When Bush took office, the raids and the war on medical marijuana at the federal level became much more hostile. You saw a uh, few months—I guess it was probably ten months—after Bush took office, he started raiding uh, medical marijuana uh, dispensaries in California almost entirely. And uh, but it was really almost a, a sick perversion of federal priorities, where it was just a few weeks after nine eleven in two thousand one, where uh, the Justice Department spokesperson. Was trying to explain what they had done, and they said, and This is a Susan Dryden said, quote, The recent enforcement is indicative that we have not lost our priorities in other areas since September 11th. The Attorney General and the administration have been very clear we will be aggressive. That's sick. When the country is under attack, going into two wars, you don't want to say that going after medical marijuana patients and dispensaries in California should be a priority for law enforcement. That then led to the Bush administration threatening civil asset forfeiture against landlords that rented out their properties to medical marijuana dispensaries. And as I said most recently, the final action was a week before January 20th of this year to block the uh, production of medical marijuana for research purposes in Amherst, Massachusetts. Things are now different. With Obama, who was a couple times during the campaign, had said that he didn't see the rating uh medical marijuana dispensaries in California as a priority, and that he would have the DEA and the Justice Department focusing on other priorities. His spokesperson then reiterated that a few weeks after he took office. And then the statement that got so much media attention in late February by Eric Holder, who's the new attorney general, where Eric Holder validated and verified that, in fact, that is the new plan under the new federal government that took office on January 20th. Holder said... Quote, what the president said during the campaign, you'll be surprised to know, will be consistent with what we'll be doing in law enforcement. He was my boss during the campaign. He is formally and technically and by law my boss now. What he said during the campaign is now American policy. So now we have a president in office and the top cop of the nation who are saying good things about allowing medical marijuana to blossom, as it were, on the state level without federal interference So in conclusion, where do I see this going? I think we're going to pass a slate of medical marijuana laws to add to the 13 that we already have, and I listed off some of those states. We are going to see, I think, a federal government that's going to be focusing its law enforcement resources on things that are more important than going after sick people in states where medical marijuana is legal. And if that, in fact, holds true, that's going to encourage people who might have otherwise been on the fence to then start up. Medical marijuana distribution facilities call them dispensaries, and it'll allow states to actually regulate these dispensaries, whereas heretofore the state governments have been a little bit nervous about regulating a system of distribution and taxation that's illegal and could be rated under federal law. I think you're going to see that not only in California but in other states these medical marijuana dispensaries, these pharmacy-like establishments are going to pop up, generate tax revenues for the state governments, and therefore, once you're generating real money for a state, it's going to be hard to then get rid of those establishments. I think that's what you're going to see over the next few years. However, long term, I'm skeptical, hopeful, but skeptical that we're actually going to win the ultimate battle at the federal level, which would be either to get the federal government permanently and completely out of the medical marijuana business, or to get marijuana approved as a prescription medicine. I suspect that will happen is that this country, given the tough economic times that we're in and the uh, rising level of support for legalizing marijuana for recreational use, the need for increased tax revenues, and the disgust that most people have with the drug war, and especially with the drug war-related violence that's popping up out of Mexico and crossing our borders, which is prohibition-related violence and not drug use-related violence, that I think all these confluence of factors are going to lead us as a country to perhaps end marijuana prohibition entirely and tax and regulate marijuana like alcohol before we even have a chance to uh, legalize medical marijuana across the entire country.
0: The Obama administration is doubling down on so-called high-speed rail, but what other countries call high-speed rail isn't what's planned for the United States. In short, our high-speed rail will be much slower and more polluting. That's what Cato Institute senior fellow Randall O'Toole told a Capitol Hill briefing audience. He argued that American-style high-speed rail won't curb pollution and will waste billions of dollars.
5: Now, the new thing is high-speed rail. France has built its high-speed rail lines. Japan has built its high-speed rail lines. Japan, of course, was the first... And the very first high-speed rail line in Japan was a success, makes money, and in fact, that Tokyo to Osaka line has carried more high-speed rail passengers than every other high-speed rail line ever built to date, combined. But what they don't tell you is when they opened up the high-speed rail line, the cost is so high they had to raise fares. And when they raised fares, notice in 1960, when they started building the high-speed rail line, less than 5% of travel in Japan was by the automobile. Then they raised fares, and it pushed more people into driving. They opened up the second high-speed rail line, and that one about broke even. And then every rail line after that has been a huge loss. So they've had to raise fares to try to make up for it. And that just pushes more people into driving, and now driving is the dominant form of travel. And the average Japanese rides high-speed rail only 400 miles a year. The average resident of France rides it less than 300 miles a year. Now, on a per capita basis, Japan has spent about as much on its high-speed rail system as we spent on our interstate highway system. The average American travels 4,000 miles a year on interstate highways and ships 2,000 ton miles of freight on interstate highways As I said, the average Japanese travels only 400 miles on the high-speed rail and ships nothing, carries no freight, it's just passenger. No other country comes close to Japan or France. The next highest is uh, about 150 miles of per capita travel per year. So high-speed rail is very expensive and yet provides nowhere near as much mobility as uh, highways. And this is true throughout Europe as well as the United States. In fact, people are surprised to learn that Americans drive for 85% of all their travel, and those rail-happy Europeans drive for 79% of all their travel. And yes, they do travel by train a little more, but uh, that's declining. It's been steadily declining, at least since 1980, when we first can get data for it, and they expect it to continue decline through the year 2030. Now, When Obama says he wants to fund high-speed rail, the $8 billion that was in the stimulus bill and the $5 billion that's in his 2010 budget is not for bullet trains, 200-mile-per-hour electrically-powered bullet trains. It's for ordinary Amtrak trains going a little bit faster than they go today, up to 110 miles per hour. That's as fast as the Milwaukee Road, Hiawatha, went in 1939. So we're talking about 70-year-old technology And it's not going to be powered by electricity, it's going to be powered by diesels. And because it's going to be running on freight tracks, they're going to have to use very heavy cars to provide people security in case of accidents, whereas the bullet trains are very lightweight because they don't share tracks with freight, so there's no danger of serious accident. So uh, these very heavy cars are going to require a lot of energy to move at 110 miles per hour. Today, The average Amtrak train consumes about 2,600 BTUs per passenger mile. That's about 20% better than airlines. But airlines are projecting, and and aircraft manufacturers are projecting, that they can cut the BTUs per passenger mile in half in the next 15 years. And if Amtrak starts running ordinary trains at 110 miles an hour, its BTUs per passenger mile are going to go up, not down. Well, what about global warming? Is uh, high speed rail or transit going to fix global warming? Is it going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, I don't think so. The McKinsey company put out this report in which they said that we could achieve serious global warming reductions or greenhouse gas reductions by 2030 if we spent less than $50 per ton on things that would reduce greenhouse gases. In other words, we have to spend our money efficiently. We can't go blowing our money on something that's going to cost $10,000 a ton. We have to spend it on things that cost less than $50 a ton. Now, traffic signal synchronization, coordination. You actually make money from that because you save the drivers so much fuel that it pays for the cost of coordination. More fuel efficient cars also pay for themselves. Biodiesel buses. That costs about $200 per ton of greenhouse gases abated. Hybrid electric buses, more than $1,000. Rail transit, if you save any energy at all, the best case scenario is it's going to cost you about $5,000 a ton, probably a lot more, if you save any energy or reduce CO2 at all. So for every ton of CO2 you can reduce with rail transit, if you're lucky... You're foregoing hundreds and hundreds of tons that you could have done if you had invested that money in simple things like traffic signal synchronization, removing bottlenecks on highways, and other things that would relieve congestion.
0: Liberty has been under assault in the past decade, but we've been here before. David Bowes, Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute at a recent Cato Benefactors Summit, provided the audience with a history of liberty and the growth of government spanning the last two centuries.
6: Many of you at events like this are often kind enough to ask me if I have another book in mind, when is my next book going to come out, and so I want to tell you that finally I have another book. It's called Tax Tips for Democrats, and it looks like there ought to be a big market for this. And what I've done is I've gone out and asked some prominent Democrats for insights that they think would be helpful to people in preparing their income taxes. And I've been very fortunate to get some very good suggestions. For instance, Charlie Rangel, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, said that I should put in the book, when you get rental income from a villa in the Dominican Republic that rents for $500 to $1,000 a night, you have to report that income. Tom Daschle, the former Senate majority leader, said that when a business associate gives you a car and driver and $80,000 in consulting fees, you have to pay taxes on that. My local Democrats, Eleanor Holmes Norton and Marion Barry, both told me, when you don't file local income tax returns for eight years in a row, you have to pay taxes and penalties. (laughs) Tim Geithner. Treasury Secretary, one of the smartest men in Washington, president of the New York Federal Reserve, said it turns out, and people should remember this, that when your employer gives you extra money to pay your Social Security taxes, you actually have to pay them. Some people say the best thing about electing a Democratic president is all the back taxes that we collect from the people they appoint to high office. (laughs) Helps to balance the budget. And I was thinking about that. You know, Tom Daschle only paid his taxes in order to get a cabinet position. So since he didn't get the job, shouldn't he get his $140,000 back? (laughs) Anyway, that's kind of the end of the jokes, because from now on I'm going to talk about public policy here. And the fact is that freedom really is under assault these days. And I have plenty to say about the last couple of months, but I want us not to forget that freedom's been under assault for a long time. We went through a lot in the past eight years. The excesses of the Patriot Act, the intrusion of the federal government into local schools, local decisions on marijuana and end of life choices, and state marriage law, the biggest expansion of entitlements in 40 years, a law to sharply restrict core political speech. The steady accumulation of power in the executive branch and in the person of the president. The assertion and exercise of the president's power to arrest and incarcerate American citizens without access to a lawyer or a judge. An increase in federal spending of more than a trillion dollars and a near doubling of the national debt. So if you're thinking things are bad now, I just want you to look. This is the Washington Post headline from four years ago this spring bigger, more powerful government, and a trillion dollar increase in the federal budget. And all of that happened before President Bush's last hundred days. And you know, we hear a lot about a president's first hundred days, FDR's first hundred days, maybe LBJ's, Obama's first hundred days, but just think about the last hundred days of this administration that was just finished. The past nine months or so, it seems to me, for a lot of us, just felt like one assault on freedom after another. Back in September and October especially, I think lots of us were just feeling shell-shocked. It was like every morning when you got up and opened the newspaper, it was like being slapped in the face by one blow to free market capitalism after another. The federal takeover of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, The uh, bailout of AIG, the all power to Henry Paulson plan, the collapse of Washington Mutual, congressional passage of the power to Paulson plus pork plan, uh, the sharp drop in the Dow Jones average, the Federal Reserve Board's unprecedented decision to lend directly to non-financial companies, the government's partial nationalization of major banks, Paulson's announcement that he would use his bailout money for something other than what he asked Congress to authorize the auto bailout in direct defiance of a congressional vote, and so on and so on. There was no time to fight these measures. Boy, I mean, I. I was indeed looking for people to analyze and criticize these things. But there was no time to do that, because most of them were just announced as done deals. Every Monday morning, the Secretary of the Treasury would tell us what he and the Fed chairman had done over the weekend. Or they were announced as measures that would be taken by the Treasury or the Fed without any request for congressional authorization. And with the incumbent president in charge and both presidential candidates going along with it, and most of Congress, afraid to challenge the dire warnings of catastrophe, it was impossible to create any real political debate. Defenders of capitalism were reeling. And then, adding insult to injury last fall, came the claims that it was the free market that had caused these problems, that American capitalism had failed, and sometimes even a crisis caused by Federal Reserve, by the corporate tax system, by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, by the Community Reinvestment Act, and the response of a lot of people in Washington was to blame it on capitalism. For a few people in Washington, they actually blamed it on libertarianism, as if libertarians had been in charge during the Clinton and Bush administrations as these problems were generated. In fact, as you've heard here this weekend, big government caused these massive problems and then as always, big government causes problems and then it demands more money and power to fix them again and again. And if it can actually cause big enough problems to make it a crisis, then so much the better. Robert Higgs wrote a book called Crisis and Leviathan, in which he told us that the way government grows in the United States is not at a steady 1% a year. It's not like from 1789 Right up until today, the government's grown a little bit every year. It grows during crisis periods. Leviathan happens in wars, economic depressions, maybe natural disasters. That's where you get government growth. And then a couple of years ago, a left-wing author named Naomi Klein wrote this book called The Shock Doctrine, in which she tried to argue that, quote, The shock doctrine is a political strategy that the Republican right has been perfecting over the past 35 years to use for various different kinds of shocks. They could be wars, natural disasters, economic crises, anything that sends society into a state of shock to push through what economists call economic shock therapy, policies that they couldn't get through if people weren't in a state of panic." Well, she had a point. Panics and crises and states of shock do lead to political change. And I think you can say that we saw that after 9-11. That was certainly a shock to the system. People wanted something to be done. People were afraid. And what happened? Well, the Bush administration gave us the Patriot Act, which included sort of everything law enforcement had wanted for a decade. that it was directly related to what happened on 9-11. It was just sort of a wish list of everything law enforcement had wished they were able to do. We also at that point got the federalization of airport screeners. We got the Homeland Security Department. And in fairly short order, we got the war in Iraq. All of that, I think, does demonstrate the idea of the shock doctrine. But deregulation and free markets, we didn't get much of that in the aftermath of 9-11. The fact is, governments take advantage of crises to amass more money and power. Jonathan Chait wrote in The New Republic, he actually wrote a very good critique of Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine. And along the way, he said, it's not just people on the right. He said, Liberals could not have enacted the New Deal without the Great Depression. Communist revolutions have generally come about in the wake of wars. The liberal economist Victor Fuchs once wrote that national health insurance will probably come to the United States in the wake of a major change in the political climate, the kind of change that often accompanies a war, a depression, or large-scale civil unrest. Now, one thing I think that's interesting about that quote is This is a moderately liberal writer writing in the moderately liberal establishment New Republic who lists three examples of left wing advances that have taken place or might take place because of the shock doctrine. And what are his three examples? The New Deal, national health insurance, and communist revolutions. I wouldn't have the nerve to put communist revolutions in there in between the New Deal and national health insurance, but he, he wrote a paragraph saying that's what the, the shock doctrine can create. So what's happening now? Well, in the fall of 2008, we had a lot of economic shocks. And what happened? Did the Republican administration summon up the spirit of Milton Friedman and cut government spending? Did it deregulate and privatize, as Naomi Klein would suggest? No. Of course not. It did what governments actually do in a crisis. It seized new powers over the economy. It dramatically expanded the regulatory powers of the Federal Reserve and injected a trillion dollars of inflationary credit into the banking system. It partially nationalized the biggest banks. It appropriated $700 billion with which to intervene in the economy. It made General Motors and Chrysler wards of the federal government. It wrote a bailout bill giving the Secretary of the Treasury extraordinary powers that could not be reviewed by courts or other government agencies. And now we have a new administration. And now the Obama administration is continuing this drive toward centralization and government domination of the economy. Take a look at these headlines from one day during the Obama administration. That's Obama's budget. And it isn't just $7 trillion, whatever the the particular number that's being added up there. It is the use of the situation and the budget to advance federal control over a whole range of sectors of the economy. And the interesting thing is that the key players in the administration are explicitly referring to their own version of the shock doctrine. You've already seen this a couple of times this weekend, but Rahm Emanuel, the White House chief of staff, the chief enforcer, the uh, the sort of deputy to the president, said the economic crisis facing the country is an opportunity for us. After all, he said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And this crisis provides the opportunity for us to do things that you could not do before," unquote, such as taking control of the energy, education, and health care industries. And what's interesting about it is FDR did this. LBJ did this after the Kennedy assassination. Bush did it after 9-11. This is the first administration that has boasted, this is what we're doing. We're not going to let a serious crisis go to waste. It isn't just Rahm Emanuel. People talked about this. I blogged about it a few times. I wrote an article for um, uh, the Guardian newspaper about this. Other people have taken note of this. And then Joe Biden used the same words. And just this week, Hillary Clinton in Europe said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. So they are proud of this. The freedom movement, the cause of American freedom, has faced dark days in America before. Think about the first great fight for American freedom. The Revolution, Challenging the Power of the Mightiest Empire on Earth. 1776 was a great year. Americans took up arms. They signed and they issued the Declaration of Independence across the pond. Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations. That all happened sort of in the summer of 1776. By the end of 1776, Thomas Paine was writing his famous words, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. That's the end of 1776. Thomas Paine is trying to rally people to what he fears is the fading cause of American freedom. What happened after that? Well, a year later, Just before Christmas, 1777, Washington's army took up winter quarters at Valley Forge, west of Philadelphia. And then came a cruel race with time to get huts erected before the soldiers, barefoot and half naked, wrapped in blankets, froze to death. Hundreds of horses did, in fact, starve to death. And for the army itself, starvation was a constant danger. Americans persisted. They came through that crisis. They established a free country on this continent. And then they endured the fight against slavery, an institution that had existed from time immemorial in virtually all parts of the world until the rise of libertarian ideas in England and America created a movement for abolitionism. And we've all read of the horrors of the Middle Passage and the regime of legalized violence that sustained slavery on the plantation. Reports and novels about the reality of slavery helped to change people's minds. But the fundamental principle that motivated the abolitionists was the pure idea of liberty. Frederick Douglass, the great escaped slave who became a great orator and writer against slavery, the people who fought slavery Used biblical language and imagery like this poster, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. But Douglas and William Lloyd Garrison and the uh, campaigning women, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, they explicitly used libertarian arguments. They talked about liberty, they talked about the Declaration of Independence, they talked about self ownership. They called slavery man-stealing because you were stealing the man from himself. Angelina Grimke wrote in a famous pamphlet, The great fundamental principle of abolitionists is that man cannot rightfully hold his fellow man as property. Therefore, we affirm that every slaveholder is a man-stealer. A man is a man, and as a man he has inalienable rights, among which is the right to personal liberty." And the cause of freedom won that fight, too. And then, compared to the hardships of Valley Forge and plantation slavery, the New Deal may seem like a minor problem. But it did present a fundamental challenge to economic freedom and constitutional government. Here's a picture of Franklin Roosevelt signing an unconstitutional bill. I don't actually know which bill it is, but they were all unconstitutional. So we know that that's what he's doing. And there were a lot of similarities then to our own time. People were told the market has failed. There was a crisis atmosphere. There was a state of shock in the American polity and pseudo-solutions being passed in panic. And the forerunners and the founders of the libertarian movement reacted in horror to what was going on. Frank Knight, the great Chicago economist, or maybe he's sort of a proto-Chicago economist before the great age of Milton Friedman and George Stigler there, Frank Knight told Hayek that the New Deal represented a general movement of West European civilization away from liberalism to authoritarianism the failure of the project of a society based on freedom and intelligence, the one fairly favorable chance ever seen in history and the like of which will probably never be seen again. George Stigler remembered Henry Simons, another of the very early Chicago economists, expressing the fear that the basic values of civilization would be lost in the coming of the New Deal. Isabel Patterson, a feisty novelist and literary critic who had a column in a big New York newspaper, wrote once that it was not right to say that the New Deal was kind of like fascism. Rather, she said, the New Deal is fascism. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, nine years of the abuse of the market and constitutional government and presidential power, then came war. World War II, the greatest war in the history of the world, the most destructive war in the history of the world. And the great Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter at Harvard in 1941 said, thinking about the New Deal and the likely effects of the war that he saw was coming, I cannot help feeling that this will be the end of the American way of life. Imagine being a libertarian, one of the tiny band of remaining libertarians, around 1943. You have the New Deal, you have the NRA. This ad for the NRA says, we do our part, but another slogan associated with the NRA was, you're either with us or against us. And the point of putting this eagle on your business was to show that you are with us. You are not one of the people who is not with us. And what do we call people who are not with us? Well, the word traitor is looming around there somewhere. So you're an American, you're a libertarian, you're a believer in freedom, you're lost in the middle of the New Deal, and then the war comes, and in the middle of the war, this is the grip of dictators on Europe. Not the United States yet and not Great Britain, but the Soviet Union has Eastern Europe and National Socialism has all of the rest of Europe or the the alliance of National Socialism and Fascism. And it was a bleak time. I mean, talk about dark days for liberty. And yet there were a few people who stood up. In 1943, three remarkable women wrote books that you might say launched the libertarian movement, or relaunched the American movement for freedom. Isabel Patterson wrote a book called The God of the Machine. Rose Wilder Lane, the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, than whom you could not get any more American, wrote a book called The Discovery of Freedom. The one that got the most attention, Ayn Rand, wrote a book called The Fountainhead in 1943. And these books started to be read, to gather a few people, the kind of people that Albert J. Knott called the remnant. In 1944, a book that was certainly more important in academic circles than these books, Friedrich Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom. That was not his most academic book, but because he was a great scholar, this book brought him to greater public attention. The Road to Serfdom was excerpted in Reader's Digest, and those of you who are at least as old as I am, can remember when Reader's Digest was the important magazine in America. And to have your book excerpted in Reader's Digest, millions and millions of people would read that. And so that was a very important moment in the the revival of the old cause of liberalism and freedom. In 1946, with the war over, Leonard Reed was ready to start the organized libertarian movement. He founded the Foundation for Economic Education, the first free market think tank. And he launched a movement with these books and these ideas and a very few people. And now, freedom is under assault again. Statism is on the march, helped along once again by an atmosphere of crisis and panic. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to let the immensity of the challenge stop us. But it didn't stop Thomas Paine. It didn't stop Frederick Douglass. It didn't stop Murray Rothbard, Isabel Patterson, Ayn Rand, and Friedrich Hayek. And it won't stop us. Cato scholars have been out there fighting every bit of this nonsense and getting a lot of attention for it. And speaking of summer soldiers and sunshine patriots, as I was a few minutes ago, a few weeks ago I was joking uh, with some free market economists who had declined to sign our ad for whatever reason. I like to do my own writing. I don't like to sign other people's statements. I, I understand people who have that attitude. But I told one of them, someday you'll be sorry you weren't on this roll of honor when it counted. And I quoted the St. Crispin's Day speech from Shakespeare's Henry V. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. The challenge facing us today is not going to stop us. We're going to keep at this. And I know it won't stop you. And I think that we face two challenges today. We face the challenge of welfare statism on the march again. And we also face the challenge that that very state has destroyed much of our wealth. And to those of you who have continued to support us through these tough economic times, we are enormously grateful. And when the time comes to, to bring out the St. Crispin's Day speech again, your name will be on that roll of honor. More than 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson and the other signers of the Declaration of Independence committed themselves to the cause of American liberty with these words. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And they weren't kidding. 12 signers had their homes ransacked and burned by the British. Nine more died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. None, however, lost their sacred honor. And you know, we talk about the statesmen and the military leaders and the philosophers who made us free. But their work was made possible by the farmers and the merchants and the traders who provided the financial support without which those great deeds could not have been done. And so I end today with this statue that stands in downtown Chicago in the heart of a great enterprising city, hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads, and the nation's freight handler, or today we might say, allocator of capital for the world. This statue stands at the corner, I think, of Wacker and Michigan in the heart of a business district for the world. And it shows George Washington flanked by two men who also made the American Revolution, Robert Morris and Haim Solomon, who provided the funding that kept Washington's troops in the field and kept men like James Madison in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. So let this statue be a symbol of our partnership in the cause of freedom. And let us not fail to live up to the example that these men set. Thank you very much for your support and your attention. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this month's roundtable, be sure to check out two new books by those Cato scholars. Christopher Preble's book, The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. It's available at bookstores nationwide or at CatoStore.org. Ben Friedman's book, U.S. Military Innovation Since the Cold War, is available at Amazon.com. That's it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.